On this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, we will continue a study through the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to the Philippians. Rasul Berry, Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day are taking one chapter per episode, and so over the course of four episodes, they're working their way through the entire letter in this study we're calling Finding Joy in the Journey. Now, Bill is going to be in charge of leading the conversations this time in part two. And uh, before we get started, he has this message for you. So we're going to pick up where we left off last time with Rasul leading us through Philippians chapter one. And not surprisingly, chapter two follows chapter one. So that's what we're going to get into next. And just before we start getting into it, I'd like to point out that Paul starts, if therefore, Hmm. And the therefore connects to what came before. So everything that he's about to write is based on what we talked about with Rasul. And so if you did not hear those conversations that Rasul led on chapter one, I would urge you to get on the website, discovertheword.org, and listen to those programs because a lot of what we're going to talk about in this week of conversations won't make as much sense if you don't have the background that we got last week. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, again, part one about chapter one of Philippians is on our discovertheword.org website, or you can just go back one episode in whatever app you use to get your podcasts. All right, so Philippians chapter two is going to be our focus this time. And uh, Bill requested that he be the one leading through this part of the letter because this chapter, Philippians chapter two, is one of his all-time favorites. And I don't think we'll have any trouble discerning why as we move into part two of our study called Finding Joy in the Journey. As we get into chapter two, I want to begin just by setting a tone for the whole chapter. Russell, you set a tone for chapter one based on the theme of what? Joy. Mm -hmm. Joy. Mm -hmm. This is going to sound a little bit contradictory, but I think the theme of chapter two is going to be servanthood. Mm -hmm. Mm. How we serve one another, how Jesus became a servant on our behalf, and then toward the end of the chapter, some human examples of servanthood that the Philippians were aware of and in tune with. And so from the theme of joy, based on that, Mm -hmm. he now moves into a theme of servanthood. Does that seem a little counterintuitive? It does. I think when we think of servants, let's just look at that one word in our culture, we think of People who often are at the lower end of the totem pole and mm-hmm. something, a role that people would rather avoid. Like if you think of being at a banquet and there are those who are sitting there and then there are those who are serving. And I think we're prone to think the folks who are sitting there are having more fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same time, though, so much of chapter one was finding joy in the midst of circumstances that were really difficult, stressful, overwhelming, suffering, things like that. And so it doesn't feel as counterintuitive maybe as it could if we didn't have this backdrop of chapter one that we've already talked about, because he talks very much about joy in the midst of very difficult things. You know, in our 21st century world, we really relegate servanthood outside of ourselves in a lot of ways. It's like, you know, we push it off. In New Testament times, you couldn't push it off, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Paul's talking about having joy in the midst even of difficult circumstances. We don't really think about servanthood as being a part of that, Mm -hmm. right? But it is. Yeah, and I think that when you come to these two themes of joy and servanthood, we're going to see them kind of meld in the text that opens 
chapter 2. So, Elisa, would you start us off by reading verses 1 through 4? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Okay, do you feel the threads of servanthood in there? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Also, the theme of joy. Paul said, make my joy complete. How do you read that? How does that sing to you? Well, he talked about earlier that you are my joy. You know, Mm -hmm. the reader's of this letter are his joy. And he, we've already looked at a lot of ways in which joy is important. It threads through the first chapter. But it's like when you act out your love for one another, that increases Paul's joy. Yeah, these are his people that he cares deeply for, that a church has been planted there that has been thriving and doing well and he cares deeply for them. And isn't it just like a mom or a dad sitting around the dinner yeah. table at Thanksgiving and everybody's kind of getting along and enjoying each other and you think, <gasps> yeah. you know, I could die and go to heaven right now. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that was the way I, I was thinking of it as a parent, mm. as a spiritual parent to these people. So you want to make my joy complete? Live out what you believe. I also think it reveals something fundamental about the contrast between consuming versus producing for others. Like when Mm. Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. I mentioned earlier about sitting at the banquet and how that seemed to be almost obviously better than serving. And then I thought about, I I remember this moment when my daughter uh, had a birthday and she decided to, you know, have her friends come over the house. And I made these tacos. It was like this big taco bar and everything. And they loved the tacos. And I was enjoying so much mm-hmm. seeing them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were so excited to see, wait, your dad did all this? That's you know so cool. I mean? yeah. and, um, and so there is something that make my joy complete, that, that when you tend to serve, it has a mm. multiplying effect yeah. on mm. others' joy. And I think when you tend to focus just on being served, it ends with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I'm taken with in these opening verses is some of the phrases that he repeats from phrases that he used in chapter one, like be of the same mind, mm-hmm. united mm-hmm. in spirit, those mm. kind of things he talked about before as a part of the sources for joy. Mm. And now he's going to weave that into the fabric of servanthood which really lands most profoundly, I think, in verses three and four. Would you read those again, Elisa? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Yeah, it feels like he's pulling off of a thread that he mentioned in chapter one in verse 15, where he talked about the different ways people are proclaiming the gospel. Mm -hmm. Some proclaim from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that they've been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. And here he's talking about the opposite of that. So it's almost like, hey, we see this group of people Mm -hmm. that are doing it very much for their own interests. And we're going to do things differently as a part of this family. (laughs) Going back to the like family Mm -hmm. metaphor, we don't do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but 
in humility regard others better than ourselves. So it's very much a theme that he's already been weaving through the letter. I agree 100%. And I also think it's really, really hard. (laughs) It's really hard to not look out for your own interests Mm -hmm. because we're so wired Mm -hmm. to, you know, look out for number one or whatever the current expression of that idea is. I mean, we're so wired to take care of ourselves first, you know. Mm -hmm. And yet Paul says, wait a minute. Mm. Don't look for your own interests. Look to the interests of others. And there's an implied thing in there, I think, that if you don't look out for your own interests, but if everybody's looking out for others' interests, others are going to be looking out for your interests. Mm-hmm. So Everybody good. gets mm-hmm. cared for. Mm-hmm. Everybody so gets good. served. What else kind of jumps out to you from those opening sentences that we've been talking about? I notice the negative command, which seems to anticipate how easy it is for us to do the opposite. So do nothing out of selfish ambition prompts me to think there's a very easy chance that I'm going to do things out of selfish ambition, which is why you're telling me not to, right? Or vain conceit. And so I just think about the proneness, like you were saying, it's hard because there are aspects I think about you know, in Genesis, right, with Tower of Babel, making a name for ourselves yeah. is still something that is a draw. Most of the time, even when we think we're doing things for others, we often have some kind of selfish motive deep down. Or so. It can be so hardwired in us yeah. that we, won't, we don't even recognize the selfishness in us. Hmm. And I think that's why there's maybe an emphasis there on sharing in the spirit in hmm. verse one. And it's like all of this is the spirit's work that's happening in them. And Paul's almost elevating this ideal. The ideal is to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Sure, we're all going to struggle a little bit with that, but he's still calling us to be better than ourselves. How? Through the work of the Spirit in us, because we can't do it on our own. And the piggybacking there is just before that in verse one, Daniel, you know, sharing in the Spirit, if any, tenderness and compassion. Mm -hmm. To me, (laughs) one of the hardest lessons I've learned, but one of the most helpful is that when I'm struggling with selfishness or what I want my way, if I move toward another person in compassion, whoa. That changes me. If I feel what they're feeling, if I put myself in their shoes, if I need what they're needing, that motivates me away mm-hmm. from what I want mm-hmm. towards maybe what's better. Yeah. yeah, and that's the essence of not looking merely for your own interests, but the interests of others mm-hmm. as well. And mm-hmm. it's hard to be self-centered and other-oriented at the same time. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just doesn't work. Mm. You almost have to be dichotomous with that. E- either you're going to be other-focused or you're going to kind of be self-focused. And probably in every minute of our lives, we swing back and forth on that pendulum to some degree. But what Paul, I think, is telling us here is that there is a joy in serving. Mm-hmm. I love the illustration you had, Rasul, of your daughter's party because mm-hmm. the joy you had in seeing her and her friends enjoying all of that— I would guess was probably greater than the joy they had in appreciating the meal. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. You know what went into it. There's a certain type of pleasure in creating the environment because I'm not just experiencing my personal joy, but I'm seeing all their little Mm -hmm. smiling faces laughing Mm -hmm. and playing and I'm just sitting back going, this is what it's all about. And that's what God must feel, you know, Mm -hmm. as we partake Mm of of that same, receiving what he's gifted, what he's set up and created for us to enjoy. He must feel that. What do we do with the end of verse three, where it says, value others above yourselves, or in the translation I'm looking at, regard others as better than yourselves. Mm. Is that a devaluing of ourselves and valuing of others? Or like, how do we navigate 
that because that feels a little tricky. I think it's supposed to <laughs> because, again, I think everything he's talking about in these first four verses goes against the grain of fallen humanness. Fallen humanness will never, apart from divine impact in our lives, will never regard somebody else as more important than mm-hmm. me because I'm the center of the universe. You know, I mean, that's the way we're kind of wired in our brokenness. So, mm-hmm. I think really the essence of it all comes down to the work of Christ, the consolation of love, the communion of the Spirit, the affection and compassion that Elise was pointing us to. I think apart from that, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. But what about the other side of the people that maybe we know that we have relationships with that seem to always regard others so much better than themselves that they actually have a lower view of themselves or they don't care for their own needs or things like that. I like to go back to Romans, I think it's 12 there, about don't think about yourself more highly than you are, but rather with sober judgment. And so it means, you know, yeah, don't elevate yourself. In other words, value others as more important as you, but also keep sober judgment, which is really correct thinking about Mm -hmm, yourself. You too are a child of God. You too were created for his purposes. Yeah, I think about Jesus and how his regard for others did not cause him to simply do what everybody wanted him to do, right? Like Mm -hmm. there were times where to stay on mission, to stay on focus, he did things differently or he didn't do what people wanted. And yet at the same time, there was a sense of a servanthoodness that says, if you want to be great, wash each other's feet. And so when I think about that, I think that there are parameters or ways in which what it looks like for me to highly regard someone else like I would a child, like as a parent, like I we want what's best for our, our kids, but that doesn't mean that we want what they think is best, for them, <laughs> right? You know, but there's a sweet spot where it looks like looking out for their interests, even at a place where it might harm my own, but I'm still pursuing what it is that I'm supposed to do as the parent. Yeah, and I think there's a a need for, in almost any conversation we have about Christian ethics or however mm-hmm. you want to frame it, there's always a need for balance because any idea pushed to an extreme, yeah. any truth taken to a stream becomes a, a kind of heresy. Mm. And I think these kind of practical ideas that Paul is calling us to higher ground with, any of them taken to an extreme can be self-destructive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what Paul is calling us to. I think what he's calling us to is that sweet spot where we understand our need to serve others without necessarily turning ourselves into human doormats. Mm -hmm. And maybe a good example, you mentioned Jesus as a model (laughs) of that, and that's exactly where Paul goes next. That's right. And so that's where we'll go throughout the course of the rest of this episode of the podcast, focusing on Philippians chapter 2. Because, yeah, the culture today seems to focus more on self-care and me-time as popular ways to achieve happiness. But as Bill said, there is a balance. But as Paul will show us in this section of Philippians, there is also joy to be found in serving. And in fact, that's what Jesus modeled for us in so many ways. Well, next, as we continue digging deeper into Philippians chapter 2, Bill has this to say about the section we'll be looking at next. This has been one of the most formative biblical text for me in my life and just trying to get to know Jesus better and what he did, not just on this earth, but even in coming, 
what it cost him, not just to be on the cross, but what it cost him to come to earth as a human being. I mean, it's just such an amazing text. And so let's find out what that passage says and why it's been so significant in his journey. All of us at this table are thankful we have the entire Bible, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, most of the time we are. <laughs> there might be some passages that we struggle with from time. Are there any particular texts that have really been used greatly in your life and in your experience as a follower of Christ? Any particular texts? Yeah, I'd go to Ro- Romans 8. Okay. Yeah, just all of it. It's just it shaped me deeply, you know, from the creation groaning and the role of the Holy Spirit to nothing can separate us from the yeah. love of God to he uses everything for yeah. our good. Yeah, somebody said Romans 8 starts with no condemnation <laughs> and ends with no separation. Yeah, and I love that. It's pretty good. Hmm. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, I think when I first started walking with Jesus in college and just seeing the soaring ethic that I'd never seen before and like this standard that is beautiful but also overwhelming in its high level of teaching. Yeah. And just in case you guys were having a good day and feeling encouraged, <laughs> Ecclesiastes has been a really meaningful <laughs> book <laughs> to me, which we did a whole series on because mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. uh, the main idea out of that series that just continues to rock my world in the best of ways is losing hope in all the things that deceive so we can find hope in what doesn't. And I think that book just is brilliant in the way it shows us all the little things that we tend to put hope in Mm -hmm. and think that, oh, this will give my life meaning or this will give me purpose or whatever. Mm -hmm. And some of them are so subtle. Mm -hmm. And that book is just like, it is all hevel. It is all (laughs) trying to grab vapor. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like chasing the wind. And I think that just sets us up so well to hear who Jesus really was mm-hmm. and what he was offering and the true life and abundant life that he gives us. Yeah, and I think Ecclesiastes isn't all that bad. <laughs> I mean, I think it's very <laughs> instructive, obviously. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the text we're going to spend the next three conversations on, and that's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, that begins with that stirring challenge, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This has been one of the most formative biblical texts for me (laughs) in my life in just trying to get to know Jesus better and what he did, not just on this earth, but even in coming, what it cost him not just to be on the cross, but what it cost him to come to earth as a human being. (laughs) I mean, it's just such an amazing text. I'll tell you a brief story. When I was preparing for ordination, which is no small challenge. The day before my ordination council, I was talking to one of the profs who was going to be sitting on it. And he said, how are you doing? I'm getting ready for your ordination. I said, well, I'm, I'm working at it. I'm trying to be ready. You know, how do you get ready for the whole Bible? I'm trying to get ready. Mm. He said, I'll tell you a funny story. He said, one time there were three of us and all three of us will be on your council tomorrow, but there were three of us and we were doing a council for this country preacher. And one of us said to him, I want you to give me a complete and detailed explanation of how you understand the kenosis theory of Philippians 2. (laughs) And he said, when he said that, the other two of us looked at each other and said, I'm glad he didn't ask us that. I said, is that the kind of stuff that they're going to ask? He said, no, we calmed him down afterwards and he didn't do that anymore. 
Well, he did. Oh, <laughs> he did oh. the next day, and and I had memorized about three paragraphs out of a theology book just so that I could answer it. And I almost felt like he was a little disappointed that I could <laughs> that I had an answer for him. For those of you wondering what the kenosis theory is, stay tuned. We'll get to it. Yeah. But for this first part, remember in our last conversation we were talking about servanthood. And Daniel gave us linkage from our last conversation to this conversation by saying the best example of servanthood is Christ, Christ himself. So, Daniel, since you teed us up for it, why don't you read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, if you're following along with your own Bible and you have a newer translation, you may see the verses offset, mm-hmm. like you see like Psalms. And, and so, yeah. yeah, because it's believed by many scholars that this is actually an ancient hymn. Mm-hmm. And I find that so compelling that you have this unbelievably complex theology being married with worship. Paul is taking this, what we believe to be an ancient hymn, and using it as the cornerstone for one of the most important theological discussions in the New Testament. And it centers on two ideas. One is the hypostatic union, and the other is the kenosis theory. So Anybody want to walk us through the hypostatic union? <laughs> well, first of all, the term doesn't show up here. Hypostatic union, union right? No. It doesn't Sounds say like something from because Iron Man. of the <laughs> hypostatic union, blah 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 blah, or, or yeah. something like that. So it, I think it's important just to recognize that mm-hmm. first. But wasn't this where Jesus? It's basically describing Jesus being both God and man. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's the union. That's the part union of it. part. Of it. The hypostatic union is basically the belief that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man at the same time without being 200%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's talking about, the God who being in the very nature of God Mm -hmm. did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or some translations say something to selfishly cling to. Or exploit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into more about what that's talking about as well. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the nature of a servant. Now, some translations don't say the nature of a servant. They say the form of a servant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that when we think form, we think of something visible. But the Greek word form here means the essence or nature of something. Now, later he's going to use the word appearance, and that does speak of external. So you're kind of talking about he's the very essence and nature of God, but he takes upon himself the very essence and nature of a servant. In other words, as one Bible teacher said, when Jesus came as a human being, he wasn't play acting. Hmm. He wasn't just pretending to be a man. To be mm-hmm. a man. He mm-hmm. was he was a very real human being. Mm. But at the same time, he still had the very essence and nature of God at the exact same time. I think that one of the crucial elements of that is it describes the complexity and the paradoxical nature of trying to understand how could someone be divine, be God, if I know the attributes of God involve 
omnipresence you know omnipotence mm-hmm. how could i be a baby and to be dependent on other people and it's mm-hmm. and it's explaining that part of the answer to that is not just a technical focus on how it happened but why it happened yeah. mm-hmm. and so this phrase mm-hmm. the very nature of a servant is supposed to draw our attention to the fact that not just the fact that jesus accomplished it because why couldn't god make himself in a human form and be a, as a human but it's why he did it yeah the nature yeah. of a servant and that's why we should have the same mind set that jesus had is because if, if jesus would do all that meant to condescend to serve then what does it mean that we should do yeah. mm-hmm. and this is where that concept that other fancy word kenosis yeah. comes into the which means emptying yeah he mm-hmm. emptied himself right. and mm-hmm. theologians have debated for years what he emptied himself of Mm -hmm. and i think the kind of standard answer that i've always understood and accepted is that he did not empty himself of any of his deity he emptied himself of the right to use his deity on his own behalf that's what verse six says he didn't consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage in other words in the garden of gethsemane get me yeah. out of here god yeah you know on the cross mm-hmm. my god why have you forsaken me yeah. get me out of here he doesn't use that power and you can even go back to the very beginning of his public ministry when he's being tempted by satan turn these rocks into bread yeah man mm-hmm. shall not live by bread alone yeah, or I even think about times where he was talking about how the world was going to change after he left. And they're like, well, when is this going to happen? And mm-hmm. his disciples would ask. And Jesus' response was, I don't know. And yeah. Only the Father knows. <laughs> right, yeah. which is a surprising response from it someone is. who's supposed to be And he says in other God. places that the Father and my will are the same. But there is this emptying himself of even the right to know the day and the hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, this is one of the reasons why I think this text is so important, because it drives us not just to the cross, but to before the cross, and not just to before the cross, but to before the nativity, and not just to before the nativity, but before creation. I mean, before creation, the King James translates a statement in the book of Revelation that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. You think about that. Before the world was ever created, it was agreed in the council of the Godhead that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be sacrificed for the world that he would create. Mm-hmm. All of these things to me just speak to the depth of how much God loves us, how much Jesus loves us. And, you know, I go back to the, I think it was Karl Barth, the theologian, when he retired from teaching and they were having a farewell thing and somebody asked him, What's the most important thing you ever learned? And he said, without batting an eye, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's where theology should drive us, not to headspace. It should drive us to the Christ who loves us that much. Listening to Discover the Word as Bill Crowder leads Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry through a study of Philippians chapter 2. And I think we're getting an idea of why this section of Scripture has been so important to Bill. And we'll continue to see that as we allow this text to help us get to know Jesus better, too. But as I think uh, we've also begun to see, there are also some seriously deep aspects of this amazing text. And So as we continue studying this letter to the Philippians together, we'll pick up where we left off and spend another segment in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11 uh, right after this short break. 
Uh, at this point in our study of Philippians, I want to tell you about another resource available from Our Daily Bread Ministries and Our Daily Bread University. Uh, ODBU is an online learning platform that provides affordable, Bible-focused classes for everyone, whether you've never read the Bible or you're a seasoned reader that's been exploring the scriptures for years. There are more than 200 courses available from Our Daily Bread University. And from our course list, I want to highlight for you a course that's called Paul's Prison Epistles. Now, this would be a great complement to the study we're doing of Philippians on Discover the Word because it's designed to give you a historical perspective on what life was like for the Apostle Paul when he wrote Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon and Philippians from prison in Rome. This course offers an in-depth analysis by New Testament scholar Dr. Reggie Kidd. So I hope you'll check it out and then enroll and take the course by going to odbu.org and search for Paul's Prison Epistles. Again, go to odbu for Our Daily Bread University, odbu.org. Back to our study of Philippians chapter 2 and a section that talks about Jesus' mission in coming to earth and how our mission needs to be shaped by his mission. A word that kind of gets thrown around a lot, and actually in our last conversation, you used a form of it, Rasul, is the word missional. Mm. You talked about Jesus being on mission. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when we use those kinds of expressions, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, there's a sense when I think about being on mission, I think about the Great Commission, okay. you know, uh, Matthew 28, you know, 18 and 20, and, you know, go make disciples of all nations. So being focused on a particular goal, and especially in the, if that goal has to do with the work and the mission of introducing people to Jesus. That's good. I actually thought of it in a different setting of like a a business or mm -hmm. a leader that's missional. Mm -hmm. And so there's a mission or some kind of phrase that they've come up with, with this is what we're about, mm -hmm. a mission statement maybe. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the organization does a really good job of focusing in on mm -hmm. that thing mm -hmm. and being missional in that way. Yeah, I think of focused, intentional efforts, measurements towards those efforts. So you could apply it pretty much to anything, yeah. you know, the ministry, business, the family, you know, your life goals and purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was in our bank recently for a transaction and on the wall behind where the tellers were it said everything in the way we operate is rooted in one word now what would you think that one excellence. word would be excellence hopefully financial trust <laughs> or something. Uh -huh. yeah. courtesy oh courtesy oh, yeah, yeah. Right. i was, Every, I was what? struck by that yeah so as you mentioned in the previous conversation russell jesus was on mission and now having spent our last conversation really kind of digging into what it meant for Jesus to come from the presence of the Father to the earth as a human while remaining God, yet setting aside his divine prerogatives, if you will, which, by the way, is a very poor summary of our last conversation, but it's what we're going to have to live with. <laughs> now we get to the missional part. So, Rasul, would you read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 again? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's why he came. In a sense, verses six and seven talk about how he came. Mm -hmm. Verse eight talks about why he came. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was his mission, being found in appearance. The word appearance is that outward form again. It's the word schema from which we get schematic, Mm -hmm. something that kind of frames up the outward appearance. He was found in appearance like a man and so profoundly that in Isaiah 53, it says there was nothing beautiful in his appearance that we should be drawn to him. I mean, you know, you would think if God were going to become a human being that he'd be the best looking human being who was ever born, but you don't get that that sense <laughs> yeah. from Isaiah, do you? No, yeah, you would expect that, right? Like in, totally. in the gospel somewhere, they're like, man, you should have seen Jesus's bone structure in his face, sir. <laughs> right. If anything, you talk about bone structure and <laughs> yeah. in Isaiah 53, he talks about the disfigurement yeah. that he would endure in light of the suffering. So yep. the appearance, not only is it not cover of a magazine, it's actually quite graphic in terms mm-hmm. of what ends up happening to that appearance and hmm. form. I think we've kind of inoculated ourselves against wonder. Yeah. And I think if we could somehow try to place ourselves in some of those miracle stories in the Gospels, and you see Jesus, he looks like just an ordinary person, and yet he does these miraculous things. I mean, wouldn't that add to the wonder a little bit that mm-hmm. it's coming from such a unexpected place. Yeah, I think you kind of see that a little bit in the gospel. Isn't this Joseph's son, Mm -hmm. the carpenter's boy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he hasn't had any learning. How is he teaching like this? Mm -hmm. You get glimmers where those who were around him did have that sense of wonder. I'm really chewing on this because I'm thinking about how God made a pretty strong point about David being ruddy and handsome, you know, and Saul Mm -hmm. being a head taller than various people. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the Bible's without beauty. Right. physical human it's not beauty. like there's anything wrong with being physically no. attractive no. it seems that isaiah was pretty clear that when jesus came he would not be right. particularly attractive so when he was found or discovered or seen by other people he just looked like an ordinary mm-hmm. guy right yeah and it really just kind of emphasizes the fact that it was the things that he said and the actions that he did that were so contagious and awe-inspiring and grabbing people's attention and how different that is from today in some ways, right? Like we're first drawn to people typically by appearance. Mm -hmm. If that was the case then, nobody would have paid attention to Jesus. And yet there's something about his character. Yeah. And I'm just grasping for a scriptural notation, but I'm thinking about the fruit of the Spirit or I'm thinking about the beauty of his sacrifice. I mean, the way we talk about God, think of the hymn, Beautiful Savior. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sense in which that's true, but it's more true, I think, of the internal essence Mm -hmm. than the outward schema as we've Mm -hmm. been talking about those things. Now we come to that trip point. We talked about the kenosis theory from the Greek word kanao, K-E-N-O-O, which means to empty. Mm-hmm. It's found in the phrase, he humbled himself. Our mind says emptied himself. Okay. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing the Greek there has a range of meaning. But he humbled himself. I, I would say that the act of setting aside divine prerogatives would be a humbling thing. So I think both translations yeah. actually work. But when he emptied himself or humbled himself that way, we talked in our last conversation that he was setting aside something, but it wasn't his godness. Mm. 
At no point did he cease to be God, but he set something aside, and that was part of his mission. That's really important, and I know we went over this, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be used, because we often think he set aside his abilities, Mm -hmm. but he chose not to use them, and that's different. Yeah, and so what is the thing that he emptied himself of is the the gnarliness there, right? Yeah, Yeah. and and that's where the debate comes in. And I think for most who would be in the kind of what, whatever you would call the Bible-believing, evangelical, whatever that term is at its best, I think the, the idea of it is he chose to not choose for himself, mm-hmm. in a sense. He chose, I'm not going to use any of this for my benefit mm-hmm. because I'm not going there for my benefit. I'm going there for their benefit. He didn't have any problem using his divine abilities for other people's benefit. Mm-hmm. That's why the miracle stories are there. But he wouldn't use it for his own benefit. You know, even you think about on the cross when the religious leaders said, if you are the son of God, come down. Mm-hmm. It was because he was the son of God that he wouldn't come mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the reality of it. And you mentioned earlier being inoculated from wonder. And as soon as we try to like get into the weeds of like, what is the exact emptying that happened and all of that, I think we begin to go into the risk of stepping away from the wonder and the mystery that's described here, which is like, I don't know really what's going on, but the fact that he was God living where God lives and left that to be human, to die on a cross That's amazing. And I can't help escape the notion that something in our humanity finds it easier to grapple with the mechanics of Mm -hmm. how it happened than the significance (laughs) of what happened. Either A, because then I have to reckon with a God who entered our world, as Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, moved into our neighborhood, Mm -hmm. right? And what that means, and then the other aspects is what does that mean ethically for me as a believer if I do trust that story? The fact that the king of kings and the ruler of the universe would condescend himself so low for the sake of others and humble himself to the point of death, the power dynamics of what that means for a kingdom and what that means for those who have means and ability to serve those who don't if that's the model that's before me what does that mean for me yeah let me just stay in the area of just trying to understand the (laughs) i love that you just brought that up because there is such a huge pop going on in my brain right now is that have this attitude among you of christ jesus that he chose not to choose to put it in Mm. you know everyday terms you do that too russell you do that too daniel elisa you do that too Mm. because we do try to get our minds about it with a mumbo jumbo kind of, you know, microscopic. And that's okay. I think it's okay because we're supposed to try to explore these things and Mm -hmm. and wrestle with them. But I think to your point, Daniel, Mm -hmm. we don't want to risk losing the sense of mystery because there's mystery all through this. And and again, I keep coming back to the fact, this was a hymn. Mm -hmm. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And in our last conversation, Russell, you reminded us that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered from the book of Hebrews, right? Yeah. That's part of that. But the shock that doesn't hit us like it would have hit the first century people was he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah. I mean, in the Roman world, 
Everybody knew what a cross was. Everybody knew what it was for. I think about in the Gospels when Jesus begins to unpack his mission. He does it three times. Mm -hmm. The first two times, he just says, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise the third day. It's the third time when he says, I'm going to be crucified. Mm. And the shock and awe and horror that would have filled their hearts to think of their teacher Hmm. on a cross would have been overwhelming. And then to Rasul's point, the way this whole section is teed up is the implications that that has for those of us that bear Christ's name as Mm -hmm. Christians. Because that was where we started chapter two. That's right. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Be just like Christ. Verse five, this is what Christ did. And as heavy and burdensome as that can feel, that challenge, Remember, he's calling us to higher ground, and we've been equipped with the Spirit, so we don't have to try and figure out how to do that in our own strength. It's only through the fellowship of the Spirit and the fellowship of the the body of Christ that we can learn how to live the kind of things that we're being called to here. And so going back to where you started with being missional, (laughs) this describes Christ's mission, and then also describes our mission too. Another great part of this conversation based on this amazingly rich text in Philippians chapter 2 with Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry, your Discover the Word team. Now, they've mentioned several times that this section of Philippians 2 is possibly a hymn that Paul was quoting that was familiar to the church at this point in history. And so let's press pause on the study for just a moment and have them talk about that and why it may be significant and how knowing that this was a hymn may add to our understanding of this super deep and theological set of ideas in this little section of Philippians. A couple of times in our conversations, Bill, you've referred to this text in Philippians 2 as being an ancient hymn. My brain keeps going back and grabbing that and thinking, well, where'd it come from? And yeah. how did a hymn get into one of Paul's letters? And, you know, now we view it as part of the letter. You know, How did this kind of really theology get laid in here this way? First of all, I'm not 100% sure that everybody agrees that it was an ancient hymn, but most scholars, I think, do. And the reason they think of it as a hymn has to do with the structure mm-hmm. of it. Because in our day, poetry has a certain rhythm and movement to it and a certain structure to it. And that's how you know somebody's quoting a song Mm -hmm. instead of just giving you a statement. And I think the same thing was true. I mean, you see that in Psalms where there's the structure of Hebrew poetry to it. Mm -hmm. And I think in the way that this is structured and put together, it fits some of those basic things that surround what would be considered an ancient hymn or poem or something like that. Yeah, and so much of the early Christian story was they didn't have any letters yet, and they didn't have any Gospels, and they didn't have any Bible, really. And so the way they would pass on stories of who Jesus was and all of that was orally. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways to remember ideas is through music and song. Mm. And so it makes total sense to me. I mean, ultimately, we don't know how this came to be, but what a beautiful way to pass on an idea to Mm. a small group of believers that would help them remember it by putting in a musical version. And whether it was a early chant or there were some kind of music melody to it or whatever, we don't know, but what a beautiful way to help them remember 
those ideas. Yeah, I heard or read that during the Great Awakening here in the what became the United States, you had the Wesley brothers. Mm-hmm. John Wesley was the preacher slash teacher who would get up and preach, but it's his a, brother yeah. Charles Wesley yeah. wrote songs. And people not, might not go away remembering every word of the sermon, but to your point, Daniel, mm-hmm. they would go away remembering the songs and the message that was taught in those mm-hmm. songs. And we still sing some of those songs today. Sure, There's something about music that embeds itself into us in a deeper way than other kinds of content, if I can mm-hmm. put it that way. I think that's one of the reasons why we relate to Psalms so much. Yeah, and also the content of the hymn. These were the biggest debates happening in the early church. Yes. What did it mean that Jesus was a man? Uh-huh. What did it mean that he was God? Where did one begin and one end? And all of that. And so, I mean, all the councils, and ultimately mm-hmm. we end up with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and all of those creeds come out of all of these debates about who Jesus was and what that meant for the world and all of that. And so I think it's it's pretty cool that maybe yeah. one of the oldest ever Christian hymns was digging into that already. Yeah. And Paul quotes it in Philippians. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that thought about the importance of song and instruction. Ephesians 5 says, Do not be drunk with wine, verse 18, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I think that there's a word there for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes because of the West emphasis on intellectual mm-hmm. processes and how that can sometimes seep into us as a church and I'm an intellectual so I can claim that struggle sometimes we can miss the importance of beauty of creativity and the role that that has to play in our formation. And so I think the fact that it's a hymn, the fact that that hymn also points us to not just head knowledge about what Christ did, but with a exhortation about what we should do as a result. I think those are just some really weighty truths about this. And isn't it interesting that this is a, a difficult passage to grab mentally? And so perhaps if it's structured and brought in as a hymn that we sing, God knows there's a way mm-hmm. in which it will minister to our spirit in a way we can't access. Because music does mm-hmm. that. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about the name which is above every name. Who among us has not sung at some point, all yeah. hail the power of Jesus' right. name. Right. Let angels prostrate, prostrate fall. Forth. I mean, you know, there's such rich theology in hymnody. And I mean, I'm an old curmudgeon, I'll admit that. But I'm not so old <laughs> that I can't appreciate modern worship music. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to lose the wealth of theological richness that we have in many, not all, but many of the great old hymns of the faith as well. As Daniel said, this might be the oldest great old hymn of the faith. (laughs) How did it end up in Philippians 2? Well, Paul is a preacher and he's used to using whatever he thinks will communicate to his audience. And he thought this would, and he was in jail, had a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> was probably singing. <laughs> Russell, even in our conversations, you talk a lot about different songs that have impacted you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in all of my teaching and preaching, I use song lyrics a lot. Sometimes I use Beatles lyrics. Sometimes I use Billy Joel lyrics. Sometimes I use some other secular thing. But more than anything else, I use hymns because they've kind of stood the test of time and stuff. So anyway, it's a good question and mm-hmm. an important question that really kind of gets to how the Bible all came together. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is the Holy Spirit. 
I think that was helpful. And so now I think we're ready to push play again and continue by moving ahead to a section that's actually the basis for a lot of our current worship songs. There are quite a few really meaningful ones about the name of Jesus. And so let's listen as Bill and Elisa and Daniel and Rasul focus on what Paul wrote about the name of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. We've been in some pretty deep water the last couple of conversations as we've talked about this ancient hymn, which captures unbelievably rich theology about the incarnation and why Jesus came. The incarnation is that he came, and then the rest is why he came, that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This was part of Jesus taking upon himself the essence and nature of a servant even though he was in essence and nature God, okay? So we've kind of been going through this. So what's the end result of all this? The servant, in this case Jesus, is going to be honored by his father for his obedience. And that's found in verses 9 through 11. Daniel, would you read those Mm -hmm. to us? Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so in verses 5 through 8, clearly Mm. the focus is on Jesus. But now the Father steps in. Uh And the Father steps in almost as if to point to Jesus and say, be like my son. (laughs) He does that by honoring his son, for his obedience and even the shameful death on the cross. So in those verses that Daniel read for us, there are a bunch of things that I think could easily jump out, but is there anything in particular that strikes you? I think the first thing that is hitting me is I've often seen this as like Jesus did the first part so he could get the second part. (laughs) But when you read it through, it's not transactional at all. Right? Like it's not he did that so that he'd get highly exalted. God the Father steps in after what Jesus has gone through and the exalting happens. And it's to God's glory as well, to the glory of God the Father where it ends. Yeah, because it is easy to think of this, Mm -hmm. like you say, in a transactional way. I've actually heard this preached in a retributive way that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. Whether you like it or not, one day you're going to bow. Yeah, I've heard that too. Whether you like it or not, one day you're going to acknowledge, and then it's going to be too late, you know. And and, I mean, it sounds very retributive, but clearly that's not Paul's intent or the intent of the hymn. I think it's all wrapped up. Therefore, God highly exalted him. It's the idea God super exalted him. He exalted him beyond anything that could ever be understood or imagined. This is about the honor that Christ always deserved, Mm -hmm. but out of his obedience, now he should receive. It feels like a wow and a wonder response to me. Yeah. Of like, Jesus went through all of this, God exalts Jesus, and as a result, everyone who sees Jesus is just like, holy cow, wow, this is amazing. And they bow their knee And they praise Christ's name because of how just amazed we are at what he's done for us. Yeah. One other thing I'm wondering about is Paul trying to reform what makes someone honorable. So in other words, you know, in the same way that Jesus reminded and taught his disciples when he washed their feet, that those who would seek to be great should be the 
servant, servant of yeah. all, hmm. is Paul likewise saying, you know what makes Jesus greater than everyone else? The fact that he was obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And the flip side of that yeah. place of honor is therefore God exalted him to the highest place because he didn't seek honor for himself, but he actually sought the honor of the father, even in the most dishonorable circumstances. Yeah. And in the same way, <laughs> we should maybe look at Jesus as a model to not get honor by trying to attain it ourselves, seeking mm-hmm. our interests over the other's yeah. interests, but instead have the same mind in us that's in Christ. And if we do that, then we can experience the honor of the servant because of our servant-like posture in Christ. That's really helpful, Russell. And I get a little stuck with, I slip into the transactional model though, that if I'm to have the same mindset as mm-hmm. Christ and serve, mm-hmm. yeah, that I'm not going to be exalted and I'm not supposed to want to be exalted. He is going to be exalted. So it's not an A plus B equals C kind of a deal. That juncture in between having the same mindset as Christ, who did this and served and therefore will be exalted. Can you help me with that on-ramp for what are we being invited into? And maybe it's into the worship of him. And that's where I take it. I mean, that's how I understand it is... If every knee is going to bow, does mine. Mm. If every tongue will confess, does mine. And I don't just mean having claimed Christ as my Savior. I mean in the way that I speak and in the way that I live and in the way that I interact with other people. Is my life reflecting a life that is bowed before him and declares his name? In a sense, Jesus came to be the ultimate servant And this is how we can now serve him, by serving others. Yeah, and so what are we invited into, Elisa? I think you're right. I think we're invited into worship. I think there's an invitation into obedience here as well, to be like Christ. But ultimately, I think all of that's tied to what he did for us. When we come to the realization of our own brokenness and our inability to rescue ourselves, Mm -hmm. and then think about the fact that his death on the cross undoes all our bad things, not without consequence, Mm -hmm. right? Because he paid the price for that. But he did so much for us to rescue us that that worship naturally unfolds because of all that's been done for us. Yeah, I think if our friend Mark DeHaan was in the room with us right now, he would remind us we love because he first loved us, Mm -hmm. that everything we can accomplish that's good ultimately flows out of what we have received from him. Mm -hmm. Not only our ability to serve one another, but our ability to worship him Mm. comes out of what he has given us in himself and in the cross and in the Holy Spirit and in the scriptures. All of that is tied together as to what he has given to us so that we can be people who have the same mindset that Christ Jesus has. We don't develop that. We don't achieve that in our own strength or in our own intellectual capability. We receive all of that through the gift of the cross that he's given to us. And that's what, again, makes the cross so amazing Mm. because a cross was a dying place. It was a place to die. And yet through the cross, we have received so much Mm -hmm. that puts us in a position to live for others instead of ourselves. You know, one thing I'm drawing out in verse 11 When it says, in every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory Mm. of God the Father. 
it's really interesting because there's this emphasis on the exaltation of Christ as coming after the humiliation of Christ. And yet somehow all of that exaltation ends up in the glory of God the Father. How does that work? Yeah. And is what maybe there's a clue in there about how this whole thing works yeah. in terms of our mm. exaltation and honor too. Mm. We talk about this sometimes of it's a little bit older language now, but people would talk about a child being the glory of their parents yeah. because right. of the way that they they succeeded or lived or just the fact that they were existing in the world. And it's like, wow, that's like the parents' glory is their child. Almost like a legacy. Yeah. And I wonder if that is at least part of what's happening here is that God's super proud of his son Mm -hmm. and it brought him so much glory because that's, that's my boy and that's what he did kind of thing. When you think about that phrase, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, that's kind of a paraphrase from Isaiah 45 where it says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. That's kind of a paraphrase in this hymn that Paul's referring to from Isaiah, so that once again, there's this deflected glory, mm-hmm. like what you're describing, Daniel. It's like a shared glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of what we saw in chapter one and early in chapter two was about them being unified together mm-hmm. with one mind and one heart and one love and all those things. So this is almost like part of the community is also like a shared glory. Now, there's one piece to this that I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners will be upset if we don't talk about. And we're not going to have time to talk about it much, but it's where it says that God has given to him the name, which is above every name, right. that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So what do you think is going on with this name thing? Yeah, I think about the meaning of name in both the Old and New Testament as being beyond just saying like in Jesus name, like yeah. at the end of a prayer, but what it means for the reputation, the likeness, the overarching identification of who this is. And And the promise, you know, Jesus means God saves, you know, and so that's what you're giving the name above every name. That's where you bow. That's where you're rescued. You know, that's where you're, you're Hmm. saved. In the book of Acts, it says there's no other name Mm -hmm. under heaven given among human beings by which we can be saved Mm -hmm. than his name. And at the beginning of the story, when Jesus is first conceived and the angel comes and tells Mary that they're going to have a baby, the angel tells them what to name him. And tells Joseph. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tells Joseph. Mm -hmm. And he also tells him his name will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. So one of those names is a title describing who he is. The other is his name describing why he came. Again, that Mm -hmm. position of his person and his mission completely being wrapped up even in that name so that the name he's given is above every name because it's the only name by which we can be saved. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure in a Jewish setting, the phrasing, the name above every name is probably oh, yeah. referencing the unspeakable mm-hmm. name of God because they wanted to bring so much honor that they yeah. wouldn't say it at all. That's Going right. all the way back to I am with Moses. Well, and even adding to that, you know, all of the names God gives himself in scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mean that Jesus is like better than, so to speak. I don't think that's the interpretation, but it's the completion. Yeah. It's I was the completed say, the, name. The phrase that comes to mind is all inclusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's, it's all yeah. of the things at once. It's not just one. It's the entire story of redemption, of salvation, of restoration, of the Father's plan 
that has yeah. unfolded all the way from the beginning of creation until now being manifest and centered in the name of Jesus. And that is glorious. Yeah, it's the Father's plan, the Son's work, and the Spirit's power that all come together to offer us what we never deserved or could have earned, and that's forgiveness of sins in relationship with the Creator. Yeah, great conversation based in Philippians chapter 2 about the name of Jesus and the amazing context around it being the name above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we've got one more part of our conversation in Philippians chapter 2 before we get ready to move on to chapter 3, the chapter that we're going to be calling the Beware of the Dogs chapter in our next episode. Beware of the Dogs, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which feels complicated and kind of clunky and weird. When I first read this verse, I was like, so basically all the signs in every yard should put you know, Philippians <laughs> 3, <laughs> one as yeah, a reference. And, and in fact, in the ancient world, dogs were dangerous. They Absolutely. were wild. They were just nasty animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so I think what we'll do is we'll save that for our next conversation. So I'm sorry for those who are all excited to hear about the dogs, but now you're going to have to wait just a little bit longer. We need to let sleeping dogs lie. Ah. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, find out why. Philippians chapter 3 is the Beware of the Dogs episode. And we'll also see why some say that Paul could be rather arrogant and egotistical at times. Humble brag or straight out brag? It isn't necessarily a good look. And so don't miss the continuation of our study of Philippians as we move on to chapter three in our next episode. And now the conclusion of our look at Philippians chapter two and how part of finding joy in the journey is finding joy in serving and being a servant. I don't know if you ever feel this way or not. This is going to be a moment of confess your faults one to another and, oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Love those. Do you ever read something about Jesus in the Bible and you think, well, yeah, that's Jesus, but mm-hmm. I'm not Jesus. Sure. How can I do that? Yes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like all of his life. <laughs> you know, seriously, there are times that I feel like when the scriptures call me to be like Jesus, they're calling me, yes, to higher ground, but maybe ground that's too high for me. Impossible ground. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I wonder, as we come to our final conversation on Philippians chapter 2, if maybe Paul is anticipating that kind of objection from the people of Philippi, because he goes from, let this mindset be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, and all that follows that, and then he immediately shifts gear to some human examples of servants. That's a great insight, Bill. He talks about the ultimate servant, who is Jesus, and then he talks about his own story a little bit, and then he talks about his dear son in the faith, Timothy, and then he talks about this dude named Epaphroditus. Maybe just to kind of get us started, Elisa, would you read verses 12 through 17, where Paul is talking about his servanthood experience? For sure. And as you read, Uh listen to see if you can hear the servant pieces in there, okay? Because it's not necessarily real obvious. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, 
children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. I mean, mostly toward the end, you could hear some of the things that are manifesting in his life Mm -hmm. or that he feels as a result of his service. He has concern as to whether it's going to mean anything in the end. He feels himself being poured out, perhaps part of this prison experience that we've talked about that he's going through and all this. And then at the end, he says, and you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So this idea of sharing joy seems to be linked to servanthood. We've seen those connections several times in the first two chapters. Do you sense his servanthood in there at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that just popped out going all the way back from chapter one is obedience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, he references the value of them obeying his words. Then we go to beginning of chapter two of Jesus being obedient to the point Mm -hmm. of death, even death on the cross. And then there, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Mm -hmm. not only in my presence, but in my absence, one of the key components of serving is obedience, is complying to someone else's plan or rules and expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think obedience has kind of a bad rap right now. That feels like almost (laughs) a a dirty word. Mm -hmm. It's like the word submission. Right. right. The same yeah. thing, like the idea that we submit to God yeah. feels like that makes us less than for right. some reason. And we actually are less than the one we submit to who is God. Right. But not only is there a qualitative difference between you know us and God, but to your point, Daniel, there's an, a connotation that being obedient means that I am somehow less valuable than mm-hmm. the person yep. I, anyone that I'm submitting to. And in Paul's yeah. view, that role is imbued with much dignity because he just got uh. finished telling us that Jesus obeyed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. whatever our hangups is about that I word, see. about mm. being a servant, he's just obliterated that That's because right. he's made Christ the example. And now as he pivots to them, it's, I'm just pointing out, dear friends obey. That's just not a combination that we normally yeah, right. mm. put together, but, I think Paul has kind of restored something here that is one normalizing. There are opportunities when things work best. We have roles and sometimes we might exchange who's in charge. (laughs) But the best way to serve is to be thinking about how do I lean into that aspect of serving other people's needs? And sometimes that reflects a sense of obedience. Mm. Yeah. And he even says not just when you're in my presence. Right. But also right now when I'm not with you. Yeah. And then describes even more what that looks like with work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to do all of this. There's a real empowerment going on there, too, yeah. you know, which Paul's constantly doing is that God's done this in me. Now, I want to encourage you that he can do it in you as well. Let me just kind of throw this in out of left field. Think about you're in the Church of Philippi, and one of the things we know about the Roman Empire is that there were millions and millions of slaves slash servants. Imagine you're a slave slash servant in the Church of Philippi, and you hear all of this. Does that make you feel differently about your status in life when now you're being compared to Jesus? Absolutely. I mean, you talk about empowering. Yeah. And on the same time, part of the reason why is because the implications it has to those who may be 
over you. That's right. You know what I mean? In terms of in the, you know, as we would say, the smoke that they're getting is that, hey, you're supposed to treat me like a brother, treat us like mm-hmm. we're family. And Jesus is identifying with my condition and my position. So what does that mean for again, when you talked about him emptying himself, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of others? the ethic that that raises for everyone is transformative. That's super important too. And as we string together these weeks of conversations, you know, from the first chapter to the fourth chapter, all the people involved, you know, you've got Lydia, a successful businesswoman. You're going to end up seeing Yodi and Syntyche who are having an argument. You know, you're going to see Jesus here. You're going to see servants here. You're going to see the whole menagerie of people and all are made equal. All are called to be a part of this relationship with Jesus. It's very um, equalizing, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does anybody else feel pretty convicted about verse 14? Do all things without murmuring or arguing? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whew. Yeah. <laughs> but again, the role of a servant was not to murmur and complain, but to obey. I mean, that's what a servant was to do. So again, this is still in character with what he's been calling us to by calling servanthood higher ground. Mm -hmm. And yet every picture we get of servants are the behind the scenes, right? Like in movies and shows and stuff, we see the conversations the servants have. Yeah, right. In the the back kitchen where none of the family goes and they talk about what they're really thinking. Yeah. Well, this would be a pretty practical challenge to that, right? Of do all things without murmuring and arguing. Yeah. And to push this down the road a little bit further, if somebody might have heard this ancient hymn and said, yeah, Paul, but that's Jesus. And then Paul says, okay, let me give you an example. He talks about himself. Yeah, but you're Paul. (laughs) I mean, I'm not not Paul. That's good. And so then he moves to two, what we could call almost civilians, Mm -hmm. people who were servants of Christ, who did not necessarily have exalted names or reputations per se. You have Timothy and you have Epaphroditus. And if there's anything that jumps out at you, feel free to lift it out. But to me, one of the things that I really like about Paul's description of Timothy is verse 20. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit, no one who's like-minded with me, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's that servant piece again. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. I mean, this whole chapter is just wrapped around who are you going to put first? There's a whole world around you that has needs. Are you going to try to be a part of helping the world or are you going to be part of making sure the world helps you? One of the dynamics of this servant relationship that you see is a deep intimacy mm-hmm. reflected in how he refers to Timothy as his son mm. and Epaphroditus as his brother. And so there's a way of relating and then of course Jesus the servant is connected to his Jesus his father right so there's these family mm-hmm. terms that are used to describe those who are in a serving relationship so this is not transactional this is not mechanical or exploitative it is intimate and familial mm-hmm. and so that also presents a certain dynamic of how we ought to think about those that we might be in leadership of. And that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't be grumbling and complaining, right? If we're in a position of serving, Mm -hmm. because that would disintegrate the kind of intimacy and looking out for each other that Paul is pointing them to. He closes with some lengthy comments on Epaphroditus, who he describes as 
my brother, as you pointed out, Rasul, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. So there's a lot of pronouns going on in there. He's my brother, but he's your messenger. Hmm. He's my fellow worker, but he's your minister to my needs. Mm-hmm. He's the one that has come to do for him what they could not do for him. Mm-hmm. on their behalf. Such so, interdependency. Yeah, there's just so much in here that's really rich. But I think the way he closes the chapter, Daniel, if you'd read verses 29 and 30 and how he challenges them to respond to Epaphroditus, the servant. Welcome him then in the Lord with all joy and honor such people because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. Yeah, he risked his life. Now, we just heard about Jesus who was obedient unto death. Epaphroditus was obedient almost (laughs) to the point of death. Receive him in the Lord with all joy. Mm -hmm. The theme of joy that started in chapter 1 continues in chapter 2, and we will see it all the way through chapter 4 as Paul reminds us that there can be joy even in servanthood, if we have the same mindset that Jesus had. Yeah, finding joy in serving, finding joy in servanthood. It's a surprising but important part of finding joy in the journey as we become more like Christ. We've been listening to the Discover the Word podcast and a series of conversations with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry studying chapter by chapter through the book of Philippians. We studied chapter two in this episode, and I think it's not hard to see why. Bill says this has been a really important chapter for him and why he wanted to lead the group through this particular chapter. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, here at Discover the Word, it is our mission to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And I'd like to invite you to partner with us in this mission by supporting this program financially and all the aspects of our Daily Bread Ministries. Every gift, no matter the size, truly does make a difference. You can give a one-time gift, or you can sign up to become a monthly partner with us when you go online to discovertheword.org and click on the Donate button. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.